kids podcast. <laughs> you can go slow. A kids podcast about. This is Sarah Jones Breaks It Down. I'm Sarah, and I'm here to help us better understand what's happening in the world. Why? Because as a journalist, that's my job. And this world isn't just filled with adults. Nope. It's our world. So every week, we'll talk about the stories that you may overhear some adults talking about, and we'll break it down. Break it down. down. Break it down. All right. Hybrid warfare. Let's get into it. It's a term used frequently when discussing military strategy, and it encompasses all aspects of how wars are fought presently. They're not just fought with guns, bombs, and drones. There's disinformation, or what I call propaganda in the digital age. There are cyber attacks. There are all these different points of access or entry for adversaries or enemies to use. And as technology advances, so does the way the world fights wars. That might have just sounded like a bunch of random, jargony words. So here to break down what wars look like now and what they might look like in our lifetime is Leo Michelle. During Vietnam, I worked as a staff member for a member of Congress. I worked as a journalist, mainly for French media. I worked at the CIA in the early 1980s. And then basically from the mid-1980s to 2015, I worked for the Pentagon. So we talked about what wars are in our first episode. You know about civil wars, which are fought within a country. And you know, wars are not just fought between countries. They can be between groups of people with arms. Technology also now can enable relatively small groups who don't have a country or don't even have territory to use technology to damage in very important ways, sometimes very large countries. So in 2007, Russia did what was until then unprecedented. They began to attack the cyber network of Estonia that interrupted banking services. It interrupted some transportation and it potentially could have gotten even worse. That was 15 years ago. We are all very dependent on cyber now. And American officials have testified not long ago, within the past year or so, they've told members of Congress that Russia and perhaps other countries can manipulate the internet and how they get into it to do some really bad things. For example, to shut down a plant that produces electricity, to interrupt financial services. You've likely heard the word disinformation or heard people talk about how not everything you see on social media is true. This has always been a tactic in war. It's called propaganda. But propaganda in the digital age on the internet can reach a ton of people around the world in a short amount of time. Just think of how fast information goes viral. Disinformation campaigns are part of hybrid warfare, and Janice says she saw it happening while she was working with aid agencies on the ground in Ukraine. There are rules to be followed by all parties. And the International Committee of the Red Cross are the guardian. They are the one who have the task by the UNHQ to go to meet both parties and say, okay, listen, when you fight, 
you cannot commit a war crime. And war crime, they give them the definition. And they tell them, okay, if you take prisoner of war, you need to provide a specific treatment to those prisoners of war. You need to provide them water, you need to provide them food, you need to provide them medical treatment, you need to provide them the same support that you provide to their military. So at the beginning of the conflict, ICRC did their task to meet the Russian and to, to explain them there. But people took the picture of the International Committee of the Red Cross shaking hands with the Russian and they say, look, watch, they are supporting the Russian. So they use the image to discredit the International Committee of the Red Cross. And then after that, when they get in Ukraine, people were saying, don't come here. We don't want you because you support the Russian. So it's most likely the Russians that kind of put out that narrative so that the Ukrainian people would be less receptive to that help. We don't know if it's the Russian. That can be any group who want the conflict to continue. Jenny said something interesting a moment ago. Did you hear when she referred to the international rules? There are rules of war, of what's legal or illegal. But international lawyer Benjamin Dior says that doesn't always stop people from breaking the rules. Yeah, exactly. I think even though the laws are sometimes violated, it doesn't mean that they're not important. So you can compare it to laws in, in our countries where there also happens... I mean, cases of murder or theft or robbery, these kind of things happen in, around the world. And the same applies to the laws of war. So we currently have laws about what weapons can be used in war, how prisoners should be treated, and many other aspects of war. But these were decided upon before technology evolved to what it is today. So do we have laws about when a cyber attack is an act of war? or if there was a supply chain manipulation that caused major economic problems, or disinformation campaigns that caused massive riots. Do we have rules in America, or even internationally, about when these are acts of war? Not yet. Not yet. Some countries are trying, and they're discussing this from time to time at the United Nations headquarters in New York. They're trying to think of how they can come up with it may not be an international law, but something, some kind of convention, which a convention simply means that people agree to do things, but there may not be any way of enforcing it, or perhaps some kind of a treaty that would be strong enough that if a country violates that treaty, there would be some kind of a sanction. A sanction is a punishment. But and I'm not an expert on it, but there, there are a couple of big issues that people haven't found a solution to. So if I want to do something bad to your country using cyber, using the internet, there are lots of ways that I could disguise myself so that it would be very hard for you to find that it's me, Leo, sitting at this computer who is attacking your, say, your electrical system or your water system so that you can't purify water or something like that. Because if I was really an expert here, I could manipulate my computer to control somebody else's computer that might be, for example, in Canada or in Mexico. And here we're just talking about countries. The problem is that 
as I said, technology now can be accessible to small groups of people. They send you a message and say, you can't use your computer unless you pay me 5000 or for a big company, maybe $5 million. And by the way, you better not say anything because if you go out and publicize the fact that you've been attacked and you've paid me and I've asked you for $5 million, I will take all of your data and you'll never get your data. So if you're a big bank, you can't operate. Whether it's disinformation, cyber attacks, guns, or explosives, how do these groups get funding or access to weapons? Sometimes they get weapons from countries that support them and want the group they've armed to rule. Sometimes the countries or people providing the weapons want to make the country where the fighting is taking place weaker or an ally of that country weaker. The latter is called a proxy war. Proxy wars are all about strategy, and it's usually a superpower country that is using smaller countries or armed groups within a country to indirectly engage in a conflict with another superpower by trying to influence the outcome of the war strategically. Remember when I said it was all about strategy? For example, in Syria, the president of Syria was receiving support from Russia. America and its allies didn't want Syrian President Assad or Russia to win, so they supported the groups that were counting Russia. Russia didn't want America and its allies to win, so it was supporting President Assad. Some other examples of proxy wars include Libya and Afghanistan. There's also a well-known saying you might have heard before, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But personally, when it comes to geopolitics, I think it's important to remember countries don't really have friends. They have allies, and these alliances are based on shared interests or common goals. War is definitely ugly, but it's important to know they almost always come to a pause or to an end. And the goal at that point becomes peace building. They include all parts of the society. So the men, the women, and all type of population. How they want to rebuild their society after. So now this is how they do the peacekeeping. They include all parts of the society. Because they discover that if they just take the people who fight, you don't have a solution that will last. Five or ten years after, the conflict will come back. How important are children to maintaining peace in the future? Kids are crucial for rebuilding a country because they are the society of tomorrow. So now you know a little bit more about hybrid warfare, but information is for everyone and everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. So let's talk about something that's going on in the world that isn't getting as much attention, but could be. Central Asia is part of the world that rarely gets covered by most international news networks. And that's not right, but it does happen. The term journalists use for stories or parts of the world that aren't often covered is underreported. Kazakhstan is a Central Asian country, and it used to be part of the Soviet Union. Remember, that's when Russia used to be a lot bigger, and that's what it was called, the Soviet Union. Well, the head of Kazakhstan's foreign ministry is calling for the entire world to give up nuclear weapons by 2045. He says the war in Ukraine, and I quote, and mutual threats make us think about collective vulnerability of humanity and urgent need to ban such weapons, end quote. Kazakhstan's president also refused to recognize the eastern parts of Ukraine, which is where Russia has been attacking, as independent of Ukraine. 
It's not the first time the Kazakh president has done this, but this time he was in St. Petersburg, Russia, and President Putin was in the audience. This makes Kazakhstan a place to watch and Russian and Kazakh relations one to pay attention to. Also, on a separate note, you may have heard some talk about Finland and Sweden joining NATO. This is an issue Leo is extremely familiar with. Finland has a long border over 800 miles with Russia, and the Soviet Union uh, invaded Finland in 1939. They had a terrible war over the winter. Finland lost about 10 or 15 percent of its territory, the eastern part of its territory, to the Soviet Union. They took it over. But unlike other countries that the Soviet Union invaded during the course of World War II, the Finns were never occupied. So they, they weren't technically neutral, but they weren't part of any group like NATO. They wanted to maintain friendly relations with Russia and the Soviet Union. At the end of the Cold War, Finland and Sweden joined, if you remember, I mentioned the European Union. They joined this European Union, which was a big move for them. And then they wanted to work with NATO. They wanted to work with this defense organization, but they didn't want to become members. Why did they want to work with them? It's because NATO did peacekeeping missions. And so the Finns and the Swedes wanted to participate in peacekeeping missions. They also had in the back of their mind that hmm, someday Russia might become a threat. But they, they didn't want to join for many years because they thought that Russia would see this as a, a provocation, a reason to get angry. So all of this has changed very quickly because of what happened in Ukraine. Before the Russians actually invaded Ukraine, they published their demands. One of the demands that they had was that NATO could no longer ever expand, meaning it could never have any new members. So they were, in fact, telling Finland and Sweden, we don't care what you want. We don't care what you might want in the future. We, Russia, are telling you that option is off the table. So that got the attention of the Finns and Swedes. And then they saw what happened with Ukraine, where the Russians said, oh, we're not going to invade. We're just having military exercises. We don't like the Ukrainians, but we're not going to invade. And what do they do? They invade. And they've killed thousands of soldiers, and they've killed tens of thousands of civilians. And everyone sees this. This ally that Putin has, he may be able to control information inside of Russia, but outside of Russia, we see what's happening. We see the pictures coming from Ukraine. And that was a wake-up call for the Finns and Swedes. Thank you for listening and for breaking it down with me today. If you have a question about war or Central Asia, or if there's something else going on in the world that you want us to break down, write to us or record a message and email us at listen at akidsco.com. Sarah Jones Breaks It Down is written and reported by me, Sarah Jones. You can learn more about me and my work at sarahjonesreports.com. Our show is edited and produced by Matthew Winner with help from Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Studios. Our executive producer is Jelani Memory. 
And this show is brought to you by a kids podcast about. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. And check out other podcasts made for kids just like you by visiting kidscode.com. Thank you for hanging out with me and stay curious. Stay curious.